your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to be reading well into chapter 22. So get comfortable and focus in here to the reading of God's Word. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every single tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything, all things, new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha, I am the Omega, I'm the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the immoral, the detestable, sorcerers, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It had the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel like a jasper clear as crystal it had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the 12 gates 12 angels and on the gates the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates on the north three gates on the south three gates and on the west three gates and the wall of this city had 12 foundations and all on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure this city, its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width, the height, are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third gate, 
the fourth emerald, or the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophaz, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw that there was no city in this, there was no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty of the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God itself gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By this light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. For anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me this river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light, lamp, or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Would you pray with me this prayer? I believe we have the words on the screen for us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, we ask that your presence, your power would be here in this room, in this moment. Lord, that you would wrap all of this up and show us the great and glorious end that you have in mind and in store for us as your children. Um, Lord, as some of us are maybe struggling to stay awake, some of us are maybe struggling to stay focused. God, give strength and endurance and clarity so that you can be clearly presented through your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so keep your Bibles open to that Revelation 21 and 22. I want to reflect on some things that we see. That's basically the last page of the Bible. It is the final chapter of the biblical story. It's what the end of history looks like from a biblical standpoint, from creation to new creation. And there are some things we see about this biblical story and how the biblical story ends. As I just said, it's about creation to new creation. That is the biblical story. The biblical story is about creation in Genesis 1 to new creation in Revelation 21 and 22. That is what God is up to, and all of the in-between is summed up that way. But how does Revelation 21 and 22 describe this new creation? 
What does that look like? Number one, um, let me turn this on. Number one, heaven will come down to earth. We see this holy city of God, the city of peace, shalom, the new Jerusalem bringing peace down to earth. It's coming down, it's uniting with the earth, and it's described with this imagery of a wedding. Who loves weddings? I should put my hand down. I do not like weddings. I liked our wedding, but that's, yes. But we, uh, here in America, we're kind of extravagant with our weddings. Weddings are kind of a big deal. They should be. Uh, We spend $72 billion a year on weddings in America. It's a lot of money. $72 billion on weddings in America. There's over 6,000 weddings in America every single day. The average budget, average budget for that is around 20 to 30 grand. That's a lot of money, guys. Um, but it shows how much we as a culture, it shows how much we as Americans value weddings. There's something about them that we value, want them to be nice. We want this celebration to be worth it or something. Um, And we want to celebrate this union. But the greatest wedding of all history is one that we're still anticipating. It's the wedding of heaven and earth. There's going to be a uniting of heaven and earth, of God's space and human space. And that's how Revelation describes it. It's an act of reconciliation where that relationship that was fractured between heaven and earth is going to be restored. Um, More particularly, this is described in terms of God bringing in the nations. Talked about the nations a lot in Revelation. So he's going to gather all of his children from different tribes, ethnicities, and tongues back to himself. Here's an interesting thing for you guys to think about. You know, we think of uh, America as the Christian nation, and uh, certainly there's some historical evidences to that, but most of the Christians in the world are not in America. And actually, the most, the the fastest growing Christians in the world are not American. Many of the ways you worship is going to be a minority in heaven. We worship in a certain American way. In heaven, or the new earth, we are going to have a, a multiple ethnic worship gathering. And that's going to incorporate other cultural traditions, other cultural ethnicities of all nations. So right now, as American Christians, we're actually in the minority of Americans in the world, in the globe. So uh, what we see here is that God is going to gather people from all nations, tribes, and tongues, skin colors, languages, to be his children. And it reinforces that for, for God, the culmination of everything is to bring people to himself, for God to have full authority, not only just in heaven, but also on earth, to make all things new. And then that's all part of him fulfilling his original design. So heaven will come down to earth. We also see number two, God will dwell among his people. God will be with his people. And uh, Revelation 21.3 says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. In verse 22, John says, He saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. 
So this reconciliation, this fact of heaven and earth coming together is so that God can dwell with his people again. He wants to be with his people. He wants God's space and human space to intersect. Number three, we see new creation described as God will have authority on earth as it is in heaven. God will have dominion, rule, and authority in the same way that he has it on heaven, in heaven, he will have it on earth. So Revelation 22.3 says this, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. This is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He taught them to pray, anticipating this event where God's rule comes down to earth where God is on the throne of earth. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do not simply zap us into heaven and bring us into your space, God. We ask that you, your rule, your authority, your dominion would come into our world, into our space, in and through us. So the good news about this is that God's authority, his rule, being brought down to earth is used to bring about resurrection. When God is in charge, he makes things new. And that's why it's good news for us. So number four, God will make all things new. Like I said, God, we, we, we have this bad relationship with authority in our lives. But we, we distrust authority. We've been burned by certain authorities in our life because they've used us and abused us in ways that... Um, God never will. So because um, of this kind of cultural understanding, we, we think of authorities taking advantage of us. We put this on God and think that his authority is bad for us. But God's authority is so good for you. It is what you were made for. And God has good intentions with his authority. And so when God's authority comes on earth as it is in heaven, he uses it for resurrection purposes, to restore you because he loves you. This is what it says in verses 4 through 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. Now, the important thing is we often, we often think that this is describing heaven in like the interim period. We often think that as soon as we get zapped up into the presence of Jesus, there's no more crying, there's no more mourning, there's no more longing. We're, we've got everything we need. Okay, But when we go to be with Jesus, as we've already talked about, there's still some anticipation for something. So this, this like kind of ultimate description of restoration, of every tear being wiped from your eye and death totally being no more, is reserved for the new earth. Okay, We're not talking about simply that temporary paradise in heaven. We're talking about the new earth. That's when all things will be made new. So... Um, opening verses of Revelation 22 say the same thing. The angel showed me this river of uh, water of life that was bright as crystal. It was flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, there was this tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. Again, 12 was just this number 
that uh, the biblical authors were used to. It, it conveyed this image of completion and, and whatnot. So you saw that number a lot in that passage for that purpose. But in the writer, John, says the leaves of the tree for, were for the healing of the nations. So God brings his dominion on earth. This is what we're looking forward to. And he uses it to bring about healing. He does not simply use his authority to crush his enemies and do away with all of those petty humans that didn't follow him. He's using it to bring healing to his people. Now, it does also mean that he will cast out those hellish influences from his new creation. That's what we saw in verse 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, the liars, basically all of us without Jesus, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So again, this is important to read. We talked about this morning. It's important to read these descriptions of wrath and hell alongside God's description of new creation. God isn't simply just out smiting people for no reason. It's because he's so serious about restoring his world that he's going to be serious about getting the hell out of it. And that's what he's doing here. So, it's because God loves and cherishes, cherishes his creation that he's willing to do this. Number five, and this is one of the important things that we will trace out here. This was God's design from the beginning. This was God's design from the beginning. Much of the imagery that you see in this passage, Revelation 21 and 22, it shows us that this is what God has been up to all along. This is not some new, whimsical idea that God has. It's something that he has been up to since the very day of creation. And um, notice what John says. He says, in the, in the center of the city... Verses uh, 22, or chapter 22, verse 2. He says there's a tree of life. What does the tree of life remind you of? The Garden of Eden, right? So it's pointing you back to the beginning of the story. It's saying something about the original design of creation is being fulfilled here. Uh, also, you see him talking about the familiar images of like the temple and the people of God, like the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. And basically... Heaven and earth were designed to intersect and overlap, and we see this throughout the entire biblical story. So we're just going to show some key stop points of where we see heaven and earth, God's space and human space, overlapping throughout the Bible. And we see it's completed here in Revelation 21 through 22. Okay, everyone good? Hanging in there? All right. All right, let's go. So the first one, the Garden of Eden. After God created the heavens and the earth, he planted a garden. God is a gardener. And he put mankind in the middle of this garden, created woman to be a counterpartner, a helpmate for him to steward creation for them both to reflect God's beautiful design in the world. And uh, what we see is God is using this language in Genesis to talk about a temple. The garden is described as God's temple, as a place where human space and God's space intersect and overlap. And we know that both God and man were dwelling together in the temple because, well, there's a story where 
Um, they eat of fruit that they're not supposed to eat of, and afterwards they're ashamed of it. And uh, the writer of Genesis tells us that God was just taking a stroll in the garden in the, the morning dew of the day. So God was actually just walking through this garden, and he was with mankind. That is the original design of his universe, that he would not simply inhabit a different space than humanity, but that his space and God's space would overlap. That's, that's beautiful. So this is how the universe was designed to be, for God to dwell with you and for you to dwell with God, but something terribly horrible went wrong, and that's what we call the fall. Man sinned, and what this does is it brings chaos and destruction to your life. All of the anxiety, depression, fear, self-esteem issues, all of the chaos, selfishness, loneliness, and sin in your life is because of this event. It's an event that we ourselves repeat almost on a daily basis, where we tell God, hey, I know what's right. I fear you as, as the creator of the universe, but still I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. That is a, a, a rehashing of the fall each and every day, and it brings chaos into your life. So God commits. He commits to again bring his dwelling back to be with his people again. And we see this traced out with a, a man named Abram, who he calls out of Mesopotamia, cool place. And he grows his family so large that they become these people uh, enslaved in Egypt. And then God does some crazy stuff. He does all these plagues and demonstrates how powerful he is. And he brings them out of Egypt, his people, Abraham's family, who we later call the people of Israel. And he brings them to a mountain. Does anyone know the name of the mountain? Mount Sinai. That's a Torah class alumni right, right there. Um, uh, <laughs> I, teach, <laughs> I teach a Torah class on Thursdays, of which he's a part of. So if he didn't get that right, he would have been in trouble. But... God brings them to Mount Sinai, and they establish something called a covenant, a covenant, okay? And what God does is he gives them ten commandments to uh, follow them as their people, but he also gives them instructions for this tent called the tabernacle. So this tabernacle was basically this tent that they were to build, God gave uh, Moses these instructions to design this tent as they were in the wilderness. And the Ark of the Covenant would be placed in this tent. And what we see with the tabernacle is that God's holy presence would descend on this tent and God would dwell with his people in the wilderness. So just pay attention here. This is what God's doing. As he's brought his people out of slavery, he's going to bring them into the land that he promised him. Even as they're in the wilderness, he is providing a way for them to dwell in his presence. That was really cool. The, during the day, God's presence would actually come down. It would look like a cloud, and there would be a cloud hovering over this tent. When the cloud moved, the people of Israel would follow it. They'd pack up everything. When it was nighttime, it was a pillar of fire. It's floating in the sky in the middle of the wilderness, kind of crazy. But this is God's commitment to dwell with his people. That is what he is doing. He is providing a way to dwell with his people. So as we kind of continue on in the story, 
we see the temple as the next kind of stop point for, for understanding God dwelling with his people, okay? So the tabernacle was kind of this mobile place that God would dwell with his people in the wilderness. But once they got established in the land, uh, Solomon, the son of David, built this crazy temple. It was really cool. You can read about it in 1 Kings 6, and uh, it was really decked out with a lot of garden imagery and stuff like that. But again, this temple was a place for God and mankind to dwell together. God did not want to operate in such a way where he lived elsewhere from his creation, from his people. So he would create uh, or instruct them to build these temples so he could dwell alongside them. So um, one of the things that we see with temples is that um, God's space is holy. We talked about holiness a little bit in the songs that we've sung uh, this weekend, but God's holiness is the fact that he is totally set apart, totally unique, and because God is totally holy and set apart, and we are sinful, when we come into God's presence, his holy presence, that can be dangerous for us. We see these instances throughout the story of the Bible where God's people take his presence lightly, and it doesn't end well for them. We have to respect not only the fact that God is willing to dwell in our presence, but his holiness is important to that. So because of that, God often gave specifications or some requirements for the people to dwell in his holy temple. And to do that, they would have to purify themselves, cleanse themselves for, from their sin. So in order to be in God's presence... We see this in a lot of the imagery. Um, our sin had to be dealt with. The people's sin had to be dealt with. Okay? So this is not simply um, just a, a landmark that God would set up and let people come and go. No, they had to have serious um, intentions, serious attitudes in treating this place with sacred, divine holiness. So they would have to deal with their sin. So, God's presence and our sin is at odds, okay? And that's an important thing as we come to the next image of God dwelling with man, and that's Jesus. Jesus. When Jesus comes, he is described as Emmanuel, God with us. The Gospel of John says that in Jesus, we see that God became a human and dwelt among us. When John uses that Greek word, dwelt, he is, he is saying, he's using the same Greek word for tabernacle. He's saying Jesus is becoming the tabernacle. Later in John, John's gospel, we see him say that Jesus is himself the temple. So look, Jesus is taking this imagery and he is saying, I am God with humanity. I am the embodiment of God and mankind together. He is the embodiment of heaven meeting earth, of God's space and human space intersecting, of God dwelling with man. So Jesus takes all this imagery of the tabernacle and of the temple upon himself, and this also means that Jesus takes up the work to cleanse people from 
their sin. That's why it's important to see those two things connected. Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. This is talking about Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn of creation, the one who has created everything. And whether that be thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. In him all things hold together. So God is, or Jesus is God. He is the creator God. But yet he becomes man, and in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, verse 19. And verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So what do we see here? We see that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus, and so he could reconcile heaven and earth. And how did he do this? He did this through the blood um, that he spilled on the cross. Through that, he cleansed the world of sin and then equipped us to be able to, again, dwell in God's holy presence. So Jesus brought heaven to earth, and he cleansed the earth of sin by his sacrificial love so that we can dwell in God's holy presence. That is what Jesus is up to. That is what he is doing. And all of his miracles and all of these things pointing to himself and bringing healing and all of this, he is showing people that he is part of God's plan to bring heaven to earth. And he's going to do that at great cost to himself, his own life, spilling his own blood, sacrificing himself so that us rebellious people who have been spitting in the face of God, mocking him, not respecting who God is, we've been kicking him to the curb, saying we don't need him in our life, and yet God takes the initiative in Jesus to sacrifice himself in humility so that he can bring us closer to himself. That's what Jesus is up to. So Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He ascended into heaven where he is now. But he also sent the Holy Spirit. This leads to another image of heaven meeting earth, and it's the church. If you call yourself a believer, a follower of Jesus, a Christian, we are described with the same imagery that applies to Jesus. Peter in uh, 1 Peter 2 says the church is being built up as God's holy temple, as living stones. Um, Paul says in Romans 8 that the Spirit of God now dwells in us as God's children. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul calls Christians the temple of the Holy Spirit. Whereas previously, okay, throughout all of biblical history, the tabernacle and the temple were these locations that you had to go to to experience presence with God. Now, through Jesus, as Christians, we can experience uh, the presence of God in and through the Spirit that dwells inside of us. We do not have to go to a location because God has brought His Spirit to us, and He fills us with that Spirit so that we could dwell with Him. So we are the temples of God. We are an image. We ourselves 
are an image of heaven and earth meeting. We, like Jesus, are embodiments of heaven and earth coming together and uniting by the Spirit of God dwelling in us, where God lives in us. And this is anticipation. We as the church are an anticipation of what new creation is all about, when heaven and earth meets. So God has been up to this since the beginning. From Eden, God has been seeking to dwell with his people And he's been providing a way throughout redemptive history, throughout all of biblical history, to dwell with his people. And he ultimately did it in Jesus, and he will totally fulfill that in new creation. So what does this mean for all of us? This is the story. How does this change my life? How does this help me better follow Jesus? Our lives... Our lives are shaped and formed by three main things. Whether you realize it or not, there are three things that are shaping you right now. Unintentionally or intentionally, these three things are shaping you right now into the person that you are. Story, habits, and relationships. Story, habits, and relationships. Whether we realize it or not, the stories that we place ourselves in, the stories that we think we're living out, the relationships that we find ourselves in, the friendships that we have, and the habits in our lives, they all shape us into who we are. Those three things shape us into who we are. Because of this, however, this means that if we want to change, if we want to be intentional, as Christians, we are people who are being changed. If we want to be changed, specifically to be more like Jesus, then we need to do it in terms of these three categories. We need to change the story. We need to change our habits. We need to change our relationships. In principle, if we are followers of Jesus who are called to be more like Jesus, then we can look through these three areas to figure out how we need to change. Tonight, we don't have time to look at habits and relationships. That's a whole other thing in itself, but we are going to talk about story, because that's what we've been doing all weekend. We've been clarifying the story that we're a part of. So uh, we are all unintentionally formed by the stories that we believe we are in. Some of you believe that you're in the story of you grow up, you get good grades, you go to a good college, you get a good degree with a high-ish GPA so that you can get to grad school, score that dream job, build a family when you're comfortable, start investing in 401k, and then you can repeat it all again with your children and grandchildren so that you can be comfortable in life. This is the American story right now. This is the story we're living in if we're not intentional about it. Or we could be living living in the story of popular, misguided Christianity, where we are living in the story of just to get to heaven. We've signed the box, checked the box of what we need to do to get there and escape hell. Uh, We kind of tell other people about it when the church screams at us and tells us to do it because we feel guilty. But basically, the story we're living in is a story of self-preservation, a story to survive and maybe just do what we want on the weekends. Maybe that's the story that you're living. Maybe the story that you're living is 
filling the gap of a distant father or a distant friend or relationship that you just can't fill in your heart. So you're going to find that perfect guy, that perfect girl to fill that hole in your life. You're going to start a big family. You're going to have a bunch of things, um, a bunch of quality time with them. And then hopefully um, you have fun while doing it and you don't cry too much. That's your story. That's maybe the purpose you have in life. Whether you realize it or not, maybe your purpose is you just want to keep distracting yourself from the pain that you feel from that thing that happened to you. So you're just going to numb the pain as far as you can. You're going to keep entertaining yourself to death. You just want to get through. That's the story you're living in. But we are all unintentionally formed by that story. It's shaping us. It's determining our actions. Neuroscientists and psychologists who are much smarter than us, they keep... Uh, finding that narrative and story are necessary for us as human beings. We have to tell ourselves a story to survive. We have to tell ourselves a story to survive. We all love a good story, right? The good story of, of the underdog working his way to the top, the princess finding her true love, the hero beating the bad guys. We all love that good story. Um, but we all have this unquenchable longing to place ourselves in a master narrative, in a bigger story than ourselves. And whether we realize it or not, we are all working to some vision of the good life that's being told to us in some form of a story. So that means clarifying the storyline is important. Listen to me. If you don't know the story that you're living, you're in danger of living the wrong story. Understanding the big story of the universe will shape us into who we were designed to be. You will not be shaped as a person into the, into the human being you were designed to be by God unless you know the story of God. So that's why it's important to clarify the story. Listen to me. We're not just here to say, hey, this is the correct story. Know the correct story. Get it right. Get all the diagrams. Know the story. You should know the story because the story is shaping you. The story will shape you. If your story is different than the story of God, it will shape you. Stories shape us. So let's say we take up this whole uh, story of God is trying to get people into heaven. That's the story we've been living. That's the story we're all about. What does that look like? What kind of people does that shape us into? I think there's three things. Number one. God getting us to heaven, if this is the main storyline, what does this do? I think it makes us me-centered. If, if the story is all about God just getting us to heaven, it frames the whole work of God in the Bible around me and my personal salvation. It is all about God's rescue plan to get me out of a rotten world gone wrong. It creates this escapist mentality where we just want to escape from the hardships of life and the brokenness in life and the mess of life. And that is the exact opposite of what Jesus did. When he sees messiness and brokenness, he runs into it and he heals it. This is not the character of God, the character of Jesus. It doesn't have, he doesn't have an escapist mentality. He doesn't have a selfish mentality. So thinking that God is just trying to get us into heaven, this story shapes me into an individualistic and selfish person. 
constantly shunning the messy and broken people in my life. I'm good. I'm going to heaven. I don't have time to deal with that drama. I don't have time to deal with their mess. I'm just trying to manage my mess enough just so I have confidence that I'm going to heaven. I don't have time to get into their mess. This is such a me-centered perspective. And it comes from that story. So another thing that we see from being me-centered is we'll create subcultures. Like for us, we'll make Christian music and Christian movies so that we can be totally separated from the world. We don't have to worry about their mess. It should be no surprise either that this has been the main storyline of of Christianity for for a long time, getting getting us to heaven. And it's because of this story that I think we've created consumer Christians, Christians who think they can just show up on Sunday mornings and have their needs met and consciences cleansed. This storyline of seeing heaven as our ultimate destination, as a place prepared for us to enjoy and to have all of our satisfaction met, where we claim to believe in Jesus so that we can dodge hell and receive pleasure, it has led to selfish, individualist, consumeristic Christians. Guys, I I was under the weight of it for a long time. The only Bible verse I cared cared about was, God has a wonderful plan for your life, plans to prosper you and whatnot. Like, if the only thing I care about is God's plan for me, I am putting myself as God. And we can't do that. We can't do that. God has a plan for each and every one of you, and it's Jesus. It's the gospel. It is the story of creation to new creation. Depend on him. Find your story in him, and you'll find your purpose. What else does this do? Number two, I think this story misrepresents the character of God. If God is just all about getting people into heaven, I think this misrepresents his character. This story characterizes God as someone who's going to abandon his creation. It's a story of God starting something good, us ruining it, and God saying, that didn't work. The world becomes rotten with sin, and because of this, God is going to zap humanity up with heaven, deserting the earth. But the story of the Bible, the story that we've been talking about and we've been seeing in Scripture is a story of God restoring his creation, not abandoning his earth. So what kind of people do we become if we start to function with this story that characterizes God as someone who abandons his creation? How does that story shape us? Well, it starts to tempt us and lead us to believe and act in such a way where we abandon our original design to steward creation, where we abandon what God's good intention for us was in Genesis 1. So God's intention is for human beings to be stewards of creation. This is what your purpose in in life is, that you would cultivate culture, that you'd be fruitful and multiply, that you would have dominion over creation, and therefore reflect God's lordship in your life, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your city. That's God's intention for you. So if we think God is going to abandon his work on earth, we will be tempted to abandon our work on earth. And that is a a horrible misrepresentation of God's character, and it leads into the next point. It misguides the mission of the church. 
if the story's all about God getting us to heaven, God giving us the Jesus password so we can enter into the heavenly gates, then our purpose in the world will be guided to that same purpose. We will simply think that our mission in the world is to tell people the password so that they can also get in. But God has bigger plans here. God has bigger plans because that's not a bad thing to tell people about Jesus. We're commanded to do it. But we're not simply telling them information. Jesus did not simply come down to give us information. God sent Jesus. Jesus came to change us to do something, to transform us. It's active, and that love changes us. So if the story is God gets people to heaven, our mission becomes simply telling people information about Jesus. This shapes a people who are satisfied to know about Jesus, but do very little to become like Jesus. I lived in that arena for a long time. I was very satisfied knowing a lot about Jesus. I would even try to impress people with how much I knew about Jesus, which, um, just a little clue here, no one's impressed. They're not. They're not impressed by how much you know about Jesus. What they care about is whether you treat them like Jesus. And until you're willing to say, I am going to kill my sin and kill my will to be like Jesus— we will not be effective in our mission in the world. We won't. We can say all the right things. We can say all the cool, like, acronyms and lead people through all these cool ways of salvation. It's like, ha, gotcha. You just admitted you're a sinner. Like, this, this weird evangelism style of just make, proving people wrong, if that's all we're about, we'll miss out on our mission. We have to tell people not only who Jesus is, we have to show people what he was like. So if we believe the story is about simply people getting to heaven, the shapes of people who are content to give people information about Jesus, but do not treat people like they've been transformed by Jesus. Nonetheless, as we've seen, the story this weekend, the story of the Bible, the story that Jesus is the center of is not simply a story about God trying to get people into heaven. That doesn't capture the full story. That doesn't capture everything that the Bible's talking about, the real story. The true story is one of creation to new creation. So again, knowing the story is significant because the story shapes you. Knowing the story that you're a part of is significant because that story will shape you and transform you into who you are. So that's why we're laboring to teach you the true story of Scripture, because in knowing the true story of the Bible, it's going to be one of the main ways that you will be transformed to be the human being that you were designed to be in Jesus. Your true humanity and identity will be defined by the story you place yourself in. No matter what story it is, your humanity and identity will be defined by what story you place yourself in. For us as Christians, we find our true humanity in Jesus, who is bringing about the kingdom to earth. So we are transformed by understanding that's the story we're a part of. In light of this, What's some practical things we can do? What are some practical things we can take from the weekend 
in line with this, if story is important for shaping us and transforming us, then you need to remind yourself of that story every day. You need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. I need to preach the gospel to myself every day. Not only to comfort me in times of sin, but also to confront me in times of self-righteousness. When I think I've got everything figured out is sometimes uh, the most when I need to hear the gospel. When I think I'm just cruising and I'm good, read my Bible, even doing some other spiritual disciplines, like I haven't screamed at my children in a while, like I'm good. That is when the gospel needs to be preached to me. That the story of the good news of Jesus again needs to confront me and say, my righteousness is not in the good things I did today. It's in the good ultimate thing Jesus did in the gospel. And I need to rest in him and glorify him today. So remind yourself of the story corporately and privately, in community and personally. Continually remind yourself of the story of God. And this is why we go to scripture, to see the story. And it's also embodied in the person of Jesus. So we do this in a couple of ways. Number one, we do this corporately. We do this as a community. We remind ourselves of the story by gathering together week after week, singing about the story, hearing about the story in Scripture, praying with one another. Um, We are reminding ourselves of the story. And again, that story is shaping us, so we need to remember that story. Secondly, we do it personally. We need to remind ourselves um, in the privacy of our own homes. Wherever we are, we need to uh, remind ourselves of the story by structuring our lives, our time, our calendars, our priorities by um, in and around the story of Jesus. Right? There are some things in our life that need to take second place to Jesus, and that's everything. Some of us have some things that need to take a second place spot again. There are some things in your life that is not helping you remember the story of Jesus because you've allowed other things in your life to tell you a story more often. So again, it's just calling us not simply to put these things in our life like going to church is important. Yes, it's important, but it's important if you want to continue to remind yourself of the story that you're a part of. And that will have an active part in transforming who you need to be. So, listen, am I discouraged when people don't show up on Sunday nights? Yeah, I'm discouraged. But you know what? I'm, I'm not going to take that as a, they're not interested in Taylor. Or, you know what, the, the band wasn't that good last week. I could see why they're not here. You know what I see that as? I see that as they don't understand how important this is for them. They don't understand how important this is to transforming them and shaping them into who God wants them to be. No matter how good my sermon is, no matter how good this band is, no matter how many friends you got in this room, find a place to remind yourself of the story. So we need to do that often. Secondly, another practical thing that we can do, be with God. Be with God. If you are a follower of Jesus, one of the most basic things you can do is be with Jesus. The Jews, uh, they had a common saying for this pursuit. It was captured in their desire. When they were following a rabbi, there was this, this phrase that they wanted to be covered in the dust of their rabbi. 
They just wanted to follow him and, and go wherever he went and just be covered in the dust of their rabbi. They wanted to be by his side everywhere he went. So one of the many titles given to Jesus is rabbi, teacher. Jesus is our rabbi. He's our teacher. We are to follow him. We should be a people that prizes being with Jesus, where we are covered in the dust of closely following after him wherever he goes. Now, that sounds odd and abstract. Like, how do you follow Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago as a man? But we also know that Jesus was God in flesh, and he sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And as we experience the Spirit of God inside of us, we are dwelling with Jesus. Again, I know that sounds odd and abstract, but this is what Scripture talks about by having communion with God, by being with Jesus. How do we practically do that? It's something different for different people. What does your time being with, with Jesus look like? For me, it's, it's about slowing myself down. I have an idol of productivity. I'm easily hurried in life. It makes me more irritable. It makes me more angry and quick-tempered. And for me, being with Jesus means I need to slow down. I need to be willing to be interrupted, which happens a lot with two little children. You're going to get interrupted in life. But it's about me slowing down, resting in prayer, silence, and solitude. For my wife, I don't want to speak for her, but she probably feels the presence of Jesus most when she's around other believers in community and you're talking with one another. That's a way that um, she may experience being with Jesus or what she needs in her life just to feel the presence of Jesus. I would say both of us need, all of us need both in some way, shape, or form. Absolutely. Some of us may need more than others. Some of us may cherish that time of solitude and silence and prayer to revitalize ourselves. Others may need to get out the house for a while and be with people because Scripture says when uh, two or three people are gathered together, Jesus is there in their midst. And that's how we can be with Jesus. So um, Jesus is present in both those instances, and we need to learn to become aware of Jesus in those everyday moments of life. Again, this could be a whole sermon in and of itself. We could just launch into that. But here's the main question for you. Are you aware of the presence of Jesus inside of you and all around you? Are you aware of it? Do you understand that you're communing with God in every aspect of your life? You are part of his presence being brought to you through the Spirit. And moreover, do you find that awareness as a place of joy and rest throughout your life? So be with Jesus. Number three, become like Jesus. Jesus is our true humanity. He's called the second Adam because the first Adam failed us, and that's the image we're all made in of. We are all made like the first Adam, who now has a sinful nature and a tendency to sin. When Jesus came, um, it, he's described as the second Adam, where we can now be remade in his image as we're made into the image of God. So part of uh, what we need to be doing as Christians, as Jesus followers, is become more like Jesus. This is what God is after. He sent Jesus to be the true human so that he can fulfill our destiny as human beings. 
So as we become like Jesus, we become who we were meant to be. Our culture, our society is telling you that you are going to be your most, most authentic self when you embrace, embrace every feeling, every temptation, longing, or desire that you have in your life. That is anti-gospel. That is not true. You will not be most satisfied in life by just following every desire and want that you have from your heart. Your heart is evil and wicked, and it will deceive you. This whole Disney mantra of follow your heart is going to kill you. It will crush you under the weight of your own inadequacies to be your own savior. You can't save yourself, and so you need something outside of yourself to be who you're meant to be. As Christians, we are who we, me- who we are meant to be when we become like Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of our destiny. So because of this, if you have faith in Jesus, if you're in here and you've professed belief in Jesus, God takes you at that moment and he takes you and, and brings you into his family to make you into the image of Jesus in a process. God saved you to change you to become more like Jesus for his glory. So God is going to change you into the image of Jesus. That's what your Christianity should be about. Become like Jesus. One of the ways that we practically do this is by spiritual disciplines, by putting uh, rhythms and routines in our life that will shape us into becoming more like Jesus, looking at the lifestyle of Jesus and what we can do to be more like him is something uh, that should be at the top of our priority list. But also, it's, it concerns doing what Jesus did best, like love, care for people, being merciful, and also bring heaven on earth. That's our last practical point for this series. Bring heaven on earth. As a human being, you are called to bring God's rule and reign on earth. God designed humanity with this mission in mind to expand Eden, to, to cultivate the culture in partnership with God to unleash his kingdom on earth. As someone who finds their identity in the true human, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, then we should find our purpose in continuing to bring heaven to earth. Now, the good news in all of this is that God has already been at work in this. God has been, from the beginning, setting up a place for his people to dwell with him. He started with a garden, then went to a tent, a temple, then in Jesus. Now he dwells in his people by the Holy Spirit. And all of this leads to him dwelling with them perfectly in a new creation. So hear me in these lists of things I'm telling you to do, that I'm also telling myself to do. God has done all of the heavy lifting for you. In fact, God's done all the lifting. And he's simply asking for you to surrender. Stop running in the opposite direction. Stop tugging away from from him and his purpose for you, and instead seek to enforce your own will. He made himself dwell among us in Jesus. God did not need to do that. 
He did not need to do that. He took the initiative in bringing heaven to earth. He did not need to do that. And he has made himself dwell in us through the Holy Spirit. He takes the initiative to bring heaven on earth by bringing heaven to us. As God dwells in us, heaven dwells in us. This means, very, very important, that we do not bring heaven on earth by enforcing a political scheme, by forcing people to do it. We bring heaven on earth by letting the Spirit of God work through us. We aren't forcing anything down people's throats here. We are not enforcing some sort of political agenda. If we want to bring heaven on earth, this is not simply some social justice crusade. This is the Spirit of God working through us. If we want to bring heaven on earth, then the Spirit of, him, of God himself needs to go work through us. And Scripture des- describes how the Spirit works through us in terms of beautiful virtue. You probably have all heard of it before. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you want to bring heaven on earth, your lives should be marked with that beautiful virtue of the Spirit. We bring God's kingdom on earth when we live out the fruit of, of the Spirit, especially love. In the same way that Jesus brought the kingdom to earth through sacrificial love, we are called to bring the kingdom of God to earth through loving others. People expected Jesus to bring the kingdom with a sword, and instead he brought it with a cross. People are going to expect that we are going to beat their heads over the beat them over their heads to give them the truth and enforce our will on them. But Jesus, the one who had all authority and all power, instead showed us and gave us an example of bringing the kingdom through sacrifice and sacrificial love. So this means, above all else, we have to love like Jesus loved. Love is eternal. Faith will pass away. Hope will pass away. Love will be eternal. If you love people well, you are echoing that love into eternity. You are making an eternal impact in someone's life today if you love them. If you want to make an impact that will be heard for millennium into eternity when we see the new creation coming down out of heaven onto earth, when we see that, our love will be the only thing that lasts. However, The Spirit of God that works love through you is also the Spirit of God that works love in you. And that's so important. This means that before the Spirit of God works through us, the Spirit of God needs to work in us. If we are going to have the love of God flow out of us, we need to have the love of God flow into us and be worked into our hearts. Before we issue this declaration and storm out of here saying we are going to unleash heaven on earth. We need to first focus on our own hearts. And that begins with Jesus. How do you respond to Jesus? So the band's going to come up. We're going to have a time of response. Um, We just need to ask ourselves, 
Again, this is, this is a weekend where we're challenging you guys to, to simply ask yourself the questions that the Bible and Jesus wants you to ask. But how do you respond to Jesus? Some of us in here, we're pushing Jesus away. We're pushing Jesus away. The God who has created you is drawing near to you in Jesus, and you keep pushing him away. You're calling all the shots in your own life. You're seeking out to live this worldly idea of success. You're looking for satisfaction in things that are temporary or fleeting, temporary pleasure or comfort. And the, uh, the unfortunate thing in this, as you push away Jesus and you say, you know, I'm just too cool for this whole weirdo Christian church thing. Or, you know what, that's good for them. I don't need that. Or, you know what, it's just boring. As you continue to push Jesus away, Jesus is still drawing near to you, and he's drawing near to you right now. Jesus has sought you with a price, a bloody price, and he's calling you to himself. So if you're willing to lay down your will, and you're willing to be made new, Jesus is calling himself to you, to a story that's greater than your story. We're here to help and encourage you in that. Other, others of us in here have been claiming to follow Jesus ever since we learned the sinner's prayer. We realize that now this was an act of not finding ourselves in God's story as much as it was putting God in our story, of using God to satisfy our dreams, our desires, our, our wants, and visions of good and success. If we're honest, some of us in here, we just said the magic words so that we could have confidence enough that we go to heaven and not to hell and then carry on with our lives how we want to. I lived that story for a long time. I lived it for a long time, and it's a heartbreaking cycle of disappointment. You'll be continually disappointed because you're not even going to live up to those expectations. You're not. And you've been called into a story that's greater and truer than that. There is a story that should be shaping you more than just the story of God wants you in heaven. God doesn't simply just want you to recite a, a prayer. God doesn't want you to simply say, I believe this or that. God wants you. He wants you. He wants to be with you. He wants to dwell with you. So that as you dwell with him, he can change you and resurrect you from the deadness and the brokenness and the hell that is eating you up. It pains him to see you continually in distress by trying to call the own shot, your own shots in life. And he's calling you to be revived and renewed. Other, others of us in here have been caught up in the story of God. We know that we're on a path of resurrection. That's our hope. We cling to it with everything inside of us. But some days it is just hard. The process is painful. The growth sometimes hurts. Nonetheless, we have a responsibility to carry on the work of, of God. Our mission is to bring heaven to Huntersville. Our mission is to bring heaven to Huff High School. Our mission is to bring heaven to East Lincoln, to Lincoln Charter, to Community School of Davidson, to wherever, to our homes. 
We are to bring heaven to earth wherever we are at. And that's what we've been called to do. And we need to be burdened with that mission, but also rest in the sufficiency of God to strengthen us for it. So how intentional are we about that mission? Do we really believe that this is what the story of the universe is all about? Do we really believe that? Is that the story we want to be a part of? If so, how does that look in our own lives? So uh, I want to give us all a time to pray. If you would all stand up with me. Let my heart be a temple And let that temple have a throne And let the one who sits upon it Be you and you alone I surrender my ambition I lay down on my pride That I would be your servant And you